and a good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast, episode number five. It's the best week at sports that never was. It's funny, the ESPN 30 for 30s, one of my favorites of all time, is the one with Marcus Dupree, the former great Oklahoma running back, one year at Oklahoma, and then he went to the USFL, ended up having one very good year for John Robinson and the Rams in L.A., but it didn't really ever become what he was. And ESPN did a 30 for 30 on Marcus Dupree. And the title of it was The Best That Never Was. That's this week in sports. This is the best week in sports there is. Unfortunately, it never was. Think about today's Tuesday, April 7th. Last night should have been the NCAA championship game. We would be in week two of the Major League Baseball season. The NBA and NHL, the last week or two of their seasons, getting ready for the playoffs, and all of a sudden, everything ramps up. you got teams trying to get in, teams trying to solidify home court, home ice, whatever the case may be. didn't happen because of the coronavirus. And then, of course, the Masters is this week, too. Here in the Northeast, where seasons are a real thing, the Masters, to me, has always been that sign of spring, you know? As somebody who enjoys playing bad golf, I'd like to play good golf. I'm just not capable of playing good golf. I always love the Masters and love to think about golf and start trending towards, hey, I want to get outside. And that's this time of year. And actually, this spring has been great. We haven't had that big storm. We haven't had that cold, cold weather. It hasn't been 70 degrees, but at the same time, it's been very nice. And yet we're quarantined inside. We don't have sports. We don't have what we'd hope for. The best week in sports this week never was. And it's unfortunate. But there may be a light at the end of the tunnel. Things seem to be starting to taper off as far as the coronavirus, which obviously that's great for the entire world. They're not falling off a cliff, unfortunately. But the trends have maybe stabilized a little bit. We're a long way from this thing being over, and we certainly all know that. And I think there's going to be a lot more time where we're all sequestered in our houses and wear masks to go outside. we got a few more weeks of shutdown at minimum. The schools are closed until the end of this month. There's a lot more to go on. But sports leagues, well, they're losing money, and fans like us are dying for something to watch. WrestleMania the other day was huge ratings because what are they going against? If you're like me, you've probably binge watched a couple, two or three series since this whole thing has started, watching movies, enjoying different things. But we all want to get back to sports, and believe me, sports want to get back to us. So this past weekend, all the commissioners of all major sports and even non-sports like WWE had a conference call with the president. He encouraged them to, in my opinion, get back to normal. He said afterwards that he wants the NFL season to plan a full season. Well, now we're getting reports from a couple different sports. And let's start with Major League Baseball, because that seems to be the one that maybe will start first. Reports came out last night via Jeff Passan of ESPN that he thinks that there's a real good possibility that Major League Baseball might get back after it 
as soon as May. And if you think about that, all right, so in May, I could see us getting back to work. I could see us getting back to some sort of normalcy, although I don't think normalcy will ever be what it was three weeks ago or four weeks ago. Normalcy is going to change. But I could see us moving towards a different, maybe a new normal, if you will. Major League Baseball has been working on a plan, apparently, to take 30 teams, move them to Arizona, where there are 10 spring training sites as we speak, use those sites, use where the Arizona Diamondbacks play. Now you've got 11 stadiums that you can play baseball in. Well, spring training in Arizona is great because the weather's perfect. This summer in Arizona, and I've never been, and I understand it's a dry heat, 110 degrees. We're going to play baseball? And there's not going to be day games. I get that. You most likely, most likely play at night. And they're going to sequester all the teams in hotels. So basically, the teams only see each other. Here's my question. What happens, and I think this is going to be something that we're going to deal with for the rest of this year and who knows how long. But when we get back to our new normal and Major League Baseball decides to implement this plan, what if one of the 25 or 30, because I think the rosters will go up, 30 players gets the coronavirus? Then what happens? Social distancing in the locker room is a joke. <laughs> Spring training locker rooms aren't like Major League locker rooms. They're nice. They're better than what we have in high school, in college, whatever the case may be. But they're not going to be spacious enough that social distancing could be a thing. And frankly, the nature of sports, social distancing isn't going to be a thing. Imagine a mound meeting with social distancing. It'd be like everyone's standing on the grass around the mound. And everyone's glove over their mouth and they're trying to talk. Well, it's not going to work. If somebody were to get sick. How do you handle that? What happens to that team? Because likely everyone on that team could potentially then be affected. So if you get one player sick on one team, it would disrupt the entire apple cart. I don't think rushing back, and I get we want it to come back, right? We all put baseball on right now. We're all going to watch. It's the only thing. You want baseball ratings up? Have it be the only show in town the way it used to be back in the 30s. Then we'd all watch, certainly. That's not the case now. And as I talked about last week, it's one thing to start up the major leagues. But it's always been the minor leagues that allow for injuries, allow for guys to move up and move down. If those aren't being started as well, how big of a 40-man roster is actually eligible to play in games? Do you get rid of the waiver system? How does that work? How do you account for these injuries? There are a lot of different ways the MLB is looking at doing this. There's the fact, too, that this report came out, and this is one that I'm like, whoa, no, no, now we've gone too far. As bad as I want sports to come back, and I'm sure you listening want sports to come back badly as well, one of the things that's not as far off as it may seem to us is the possibility of seven-inning games. Now, think about this. We're going to start a season 
before players are ready. Because if they go in mid-May, traditionally spring training is a five- to six-week thing. If that's the case, we're talking about late June or maybe July before games actually start. That's not what this is saying. They're saying a couple weeks of spring training. So pitchers, they're not ramping up. They're going to start with three, four inning outings. Think about that. You've got your ace, Jacob deGrom, for the Mets. As a Mets fan, I'll use him as an example. Going. And that's a day traditionally that you're figuring seven innings from a starter, let the bullpen come in, pitch a couple innings, hopefully protect the lead, which they don't do very well, and get a win. Well, in a seven-inning game, or maybe in a spring training that never was, you're going to have Jacob DeGrom for three innings and then move him on. What's this going to do to guys' career numbers? Think of a Jacob DeGrom, who's now won two Cy Youngs. He's in his early 30s. The odds of him being a Hall of Famer are very slim, although there have been guys with shorter careers who put up astounding numbers over a seven- or ten-year period, and they've been in the Hall of Fame. Guys like Robinson Cano, he's got 2,600 hits. Miguel Cabrera closing in on 3,000 hits. These guys have milestones that they're looking to get. Now you're only getting two at-bats a game. This becomes a high school game. It becomes a bullpen game. Your team, built on starting pitching, in my opinion, has no chance. So you've taken away the fact that teams build their teams a certain way. Some teams, the Yankees, for example, have great deep bullpens. Their advantage in this situation would be huge because they have the depth of the bullpen. But to change the game, to squeeze in a season, bastardizes the game, bastardizes the season. In my opinion, it is a colossal mistake if they ever go down that road. Now, here's the other thing. You start with a seven-inning game. People are going to say, well, look how much quicker the game is. Look the speed of play. They're always talking about trying to get games to be quicker. And to me, that's one of those things. You're trying to appeal to an audience that's never going to go along with baseball anyway. The world we live in, younger people have way more options than people like myself, older people, had when we were kids. When we were kids, we had a stick, we had a rock, and we were told to go out and play. And you threw the rock and you you know, hit things with the stick. That was our life. So when we had a chance to do something with a bat and ball and glove, hey, bring it on. Nowadays, kids have iPads. They have their Xboxes. They have everything that they don't have to look for something to do. There's always something to do digitally. So when it comes time to unplug, they're going to the ballpark with their phones. They don't unplug. They're on their phones during the game. We see it all the time. It's a reason, in large part, that netting is now something that's around most ballparks for players for fan safety because the fans are paying attention. They're on their device. Younger fans are never going to stop being on their device. So now baseball is trying to change the game to allow these fans who are never going to find the game. It's interesting as older people like me who grew up playing the game are going to find it. So you're bastardizing the game and taking people like me and turning us off to the game in an effort to create new fans who are never going to come on board. Stop changing the game. Let those of us who appreciate it for what it is 
appreciate it. The other ones, at this point, I don't think you're going to get them anyway. I understand you're trying to grow the game. The game's not going to grow. Frankly, none of these games are going to grow. The only game that's grown has been the NFL. And the reason it's grown is because of gambling. Maybe gambling and baseball will help it grow. Because that's the only way nowadays a sport will grow. Stop ruining the game I love and making it something that somebody else will never love. It just doesn't make sense. So that's the Major League Baseball plan. And frankly, I don't like it. But for golf, (laughs) we mentioned the Masters. This is Masters week. Yesterday, the PGA Tour came out with an announcement that if you're a golf fan, you're going to enjoy this. And, you know, I've always had this debate when I did my radio show. We'd talk about this. What's the best time of year for sports? To me, it's right now, this week, as I mentioned, the best that ever was. The other argument is the fall, because you've got hockey and basketball starting up. You've got college football, which is just a huge southern, down south. The NFL is second to college. I love college football. I know a lot of people don't. I think it's a great sport. But if you are a football fan, the fall might be better for you. Well, how about this as far as the golf? The British Open was canceled yesterday, or the Open Championship, if you want to be an elitist. It was canceled. They're not going to be able to replay it. Seizing the opportunity that that created, that the PGA Tour then doesn't have to worry about the Open Championship, They've come up with an idea that, in my opinion, is going to make golf one of the most watched sports in the fall and may allow the NFL and may allow college football to, in a way, be more patient. The Masters came out yesterday, and they announced that they will have their tournament in November, November 9th through the 15th. So November 15th is a Sunday right in the middle of the NFL season. And we're going to be watching the final round of the Masters. Now, it's going to be somewhat problematic for CBS, the network that carries the Masters, but there are bad problems and good problems. The bad problem here is that the 1 o'clock games will all likely be 4 o'clock games on CBS. Fox football will have the doubleheader that week, and the Masters will be off on an early start on that Sunday and allow for an early finish that Sunday to make sure that the four o'clock games have everybody's full attention. So the masters in November. Now I I mentioned the masters sign of spring, you know, the azaleas, the dogwoods, the beautiful course. What's it going to look like in November? I'm curious. I don't expect, although it's the masters, they can do whatever they want because they have more money than anybody. I expect there's not going to be the flowers. It's going to look far different. But at the same time, the iconic course will still be there. The reason, in my opinion, we all like the Masters better than anything else is we all know the course. You know, the the old saying, the Masters doesn't begin till Sunday afternoon. It's because at the back nine on Sunday, we know number 10. Well, they better hit it in the fairway on 10 because that green – the way it slopes, it's going to be tough to putt. No matter where you put it, no birdies there. 11 with the water on the left, if you're not in the fairway, that always comes into play. 12, we've seen more tournaments lost on 12, and Freddie Couples won a tournament on a golf ball that didn't roll back. 
13 is a par five. My point is, we all know the course, and that's what makes it special. And the course will still be the same. So it'll still be special. Will it look different? Absolutely it will. Will there be fans there? I'm not sure there will. Although by that point, I certainly hope so. But even still, to have the Masters be played and to be played differently will be a lot of fun. It's going to be an interesting week. The PGA Tour is hoping to kick things back off going forward in possibly early June. Likely no fans, but if there's a sport that could do social distancing, it's golf. You've got a player and a caddy, and they don't have to be all that close to each other for most of the time. The caddy hands the player his club. They, if they're careful, gloves, I'm sure, will be worn. There's a lot of ways for them to make sure they're safe. So in August, the PGA Championship, which used to be in August, now is moved to May. We'll move back to August, August 3rd through 9th at Harding Park in San Francisco. This begins things for the PGA Tour, the big part of the tour, the first major. There will only be three this year. So the question is, somebody wins all three, do they win a Grand Slam? I say no. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Then there's the FedEx Cup playoffs. And this was something that I was never really a big fan of. But as time has gone on, I've gotten to enjoy. You pare them down. My big problem with the PGA, with the FedEx playoffs, is the Tour Championship. It's held at East Lake in Atlanta. East Lake, to me, although a great story, Bobby Jones, golf loves its history, is the guy who created it. But the course itself isn't all that special. I talked about the Masters and the course at Augusta. The viewing of that course lends itself to why it's so great of a tournament. Eastlake is a very bland course. There are very few holes that you look at and go, yeah, that's a great golf hole. That's fun. The tournament can be won or lost on this hole. Well, Eastlake is one of those places that's just boring. But still, FedEx Cup playoffs. Then we get into September. And the first weekend of the NFL season as scheduled would now be the U.S. Open. The U.S. Open's at Wingfoot in downstate New York. Now, whether or not there are fans there, again, we don't know. We're talking September 9th through the 14th. But the U.S. Open, fall golf. If you're a golfer and you live in the Northeast, fall golf is great. Leaves starting to change. It is beautiful. I don't think they'll have to play the leaf rule like we all do. But it is one of those things that is a great place for golf. And then you've got the Ryder Cup shortly thereafter. Then a couple weeks after, the Ryder Cup is the 25th through the 27th of September. Obviously, always a great event. This year, it'll be in Wisconsin. So, again, golf is capitalizing on their schedule changes. And I think that's something going forward that's really going to be interesting. So, I'm pleased that we have something to look forward to. I'm pleased that we now are going to be able to look at things in a way that we've got the light at the end of the tunnel. And and maybe that's as important as anything else. I know September seems a long way off. August seems a long way off. Heck, at this point, next week seems a long way off. But, yeah, at least we've got something 
going forward. So I'm looking forward to some fall golf in a different way than I've ever looked forward to it again. Usually it's just playing it. The NFL draft is still on two, just over two weeks, two weeks from Thursday. As I record this, it's Tuesday morning, April 7th. So we've got a little over two weeks left. And though the Buffalo Bills, our local team of interest, is not going to be drafting most likely. I say most likely because Brandon Bean likes a trade. We all know that. They're not likely to draft in the first round. So because of that, we're going to look today at what the rest of the AFC East should do or maybe will do. You think about it. This is the first time in 20 years that Tom Brady hasn't been in the AFC East. So this is not your father's AFC East, if you will. The AFC East, maybe the road to the title may go through Buffalo. And though the Patriots are still the Vegas favorite and Brandon Bean last week on a conference call said as such, they've done nothing until they beat the Patriots. I like the fact that Bean said that. I like the fact that Bean is talking about things like that. The AFC East quarterback situation as is. Josh Allen, of course, in Buffalo. Sam Darnold in New York with the Jets. Ryan Fitzpatrick and Josh Rosen down in Miami. Jared Stidham, Brian Hoyer in New England. Right now, the Jets and Bills can argue about who's got the best quarterback situation in the AFC East. The question now with the draft is, who does what? Where do teams go? The Jets are an interesting team in the draft because they can go anywhere. They need talent everywhere. They drafted number 11. They also have eight picks in the draft. They're not stockpiled with picks, but they've got a new general manager, Joe Douglas, who seems to be doing some really good things. In addition, by the way, during this coronavirus situation, got to throw this out because this is one of those things that I look at and I'm like, that's a good dude and he deserves credit. Joe Douglas, when he gets takeout for his family, has done it multiple times, leaves a $100 tip each time to help out the workers of the places that he's buying from. Good on you, Joe. Joe Douglas is going to figure it out in New York. To me, the Jets are about a year behind the Bills. I don't like Adam Gase, and I don't think he's the right guy to get the best out of Sam Darnold. But that's a whole other situation. The Jets don't need a quarterback, but they need everything else and maybe need a backup quarterback. Sam Darnold, one of the biggest questions is, can he stay healthy? To this point, he is not. So why not, if you're the Jets, why not go out and sign Jameis Winston? They did so last year with Teddy Bridgewater, traded him to New Orleans, got a draft pick out of it. It's a smart, smart move by the team. Do the same thing with Jameis Winston. Sign him if you don't need him or if somebody gets hurt in training camp, if there is a training camp, trade him. He's an asset. Jameis is a starting quarterback in the NFL right now. There are a lot of teams that are hoping to find their starting quarterback in the draft this year. Jameis is sitting there for free. And why teams value draft picks more than established players. I'm not saying Jameis is a pro ball player, but you know what you have, and you know that that guy can play the position. Is he somebody who turns it over too much? Obviously, yes. But at the same time, don't take a chance on somebody that may never be able to play the position over somebody who can. And that's Jameis. If I'm the Jets, 
I look to sign Jameis Winston as a backup. Secondly, if I'm the Jets, and they sit at number 11, I take whoever's available. It does not matter what player drops. If Jeffrey Okba, the cornerback out of Ohio State, happens to drop, yes, please. Offensive lineman, okay, take that. Even Derek Brown, the defensive tackle out of Auburn, if he drops, take him. You could go anywhere. Don't pigeonhole yourself. And the one thing I would not do if I'm the Jets is take a position because you think you need a wide receiver or you need an offensive lineman to help Sam Darnold develop. Take the best available player. If you don't do that and you're an NFL GM, you just hurt your chances at success. If I'm the Jets, I try to stick to my board and take the best available player. And if that best available happens to be a Jerry Judy or a C.D. Lamb, then take him, but stick to your board. The Dolphins are really interesting this year in the draft, not only because they have so much draft capital. This is a team that has three first-round picks and two second-round picks. They have 14 picks overall, including the fifth pick in the first round. They have an opportunity to go anywhere in this draft, and to me, they're the team that runs – this draft. There's always one team that decides how this draft is going to go. The Dolphins have done some good work in free agency, including adding Shaq Lawson, the former Buffalo Bill, to their defensive line. This is a draft for them to build your team. The one position I would not take is the one position that everyone else is saying they need to take. The Dolphins, with Ryan Fitzpatrick and Josh Rosen, have two quarterbacks that you know what they are to an extent. You don't know what Josh Rosen can be. There's still hope that Rosen can become the guy or a guy. Fitz is Fitz. I call him the cockroach because you can't kill a cockroach and you can't kill Ryan Fitzpatrick's football career. Everywhere this guy goes, he ends up starting. He ends up winning games. He ends up losing games because he throws bad interceptions. But all the while, his teammates love him, the fans love him, and he gives the cities something to watch. If I'm the Dolphins, looking at what's next year with two quarterbacks that are likely better than the quarterbacks, all of them that are going out, coming out this year, I sit tight at the quarterback position. I don't take a quarterback. I build my roster, and continue to do so. And trade down at five. Everyone's talking about the Dolphins trading up. If I could trade out of the fifth pick to somebody else who wants to come up and get Tua or get Herbert or one of the other quarterbacks, by all means do it. And secure another first-round pick for next year. So that way next year when you need to get the draft capital to go up and possibly get one of those really good quarterbacks next year, you have the draft capital to do it. Give Rosen a chance. If he fails, you know what you got in Fitz. You're going to win a few football games. And Brian Flores, he's getting it the right way. And that brings us to the New England Patriots, who, for the first time in 20 years, won't have Tom Brady under center. Of course, we all know Brady's in Tampa. Here's the other thing. Brian Hoyer and Jared Stidham are there now. Do we really think that's what Bill Belichick is going into? Do we really think that Belichick is willing to go forward with those young guys as quarterbacks? I personally don't. I don't see that happen. Belichick 
isn't going to tank. I know that was whispered about that, oh, the Patriots are going to tank. No, they're not. Belichick won't do that. He wants to prove the debate. Belichick or Brady? Belichick wants everyone to know it was him. And he's got a much better chance to prove it was him than Brady does to prove it was Brady. I think that they get either Jameis, which that would be unlikely, or maybe Cam Newton. I I know Andy Dalton is going to end up somewhere. I don't know if that'll work. But Jared Stidham and Brian Hoyer, as much as the Patriots have talked up Stidham, I find it hard to believe that he's the guy that they're going forward with. But they also saw him every day in practice last year. They know what the kid's about. They understand his strengths and weaknesses better than anybody. The question I have is, do you have enough in Stidham to allow the team to play conservative offensively in hopes he makes a couple big plays a game and allow the defense to keep them in games? Remember when Brady started? Anyone remember that? When they won their first Super Bowl against the Rams? The strength of that Patriots team, that first championship team, was their defense. It wasn't Tom Brady in the offense. Brady didn't do a whole lot. They won not in spite of him, but with him at quarterback, not because of him and quarterback. He carried enough teams to the Super Bowl that his greatness is in question. But let's not forget that Belichick was smart enough to build a defense with a young quarterback and then bring that young quarterback along slowly. Can they do the same thing with Jared Stidham? Or do they do something in the draft? Now, the Patriots, they always work the system to get the compensatory picks. Again, this year, they've got two, they've got two extra third-round picks. They have three third-round picks. They draft number 23 overall, and they've got 12 picks overall. They want to move up, not all the way to the top five, but if they want to move up to 10, 11 – to possibly draft a Herbert or Jordan Love who have maybe slipped in the draft, they have the ability to do so. It's going to be a very different AFC East this year without Tom Brady for a lot of reasons. And don't think the other three teams aren't aware of their opportunity now to go forward. One thing the NFL has talked about is how to adjust their schedule. I mean, this is the new day of sports. With the coronavirus, the time for... How do we adjust these things? How do we fit this in? Do we move the season back? Well, I kind of like one adjustment that they may have had. They've discussed the possibility of playing only a 14-game schedule or maybe a 12-game schedule. They're not as likely to do so, in my opinion, because they'll lose revenue and the owners would have to accept that they're going to lose revenue. But this is one of those things to keep an eye on. Because next year, of course, they're going to 17 games, which I feel is too many. A 12-game schedule in the NFL, think about how great it would be towards the end of that 12 games. It's not going to be meaningless football the last week of the season. Yeah, there's an extra playoff team, but there are going to be a whole lot of people involved and ready to go. A lot of teams, first month of the season, they're feeling themselves out. So a 12-game schedule... It would be much more of a sprint than a marathon, and I think it would be great all the way around. Keep your eye out for that. While we talk NFL, I got I to gotta get into this. The announcing world, the media, 
has changed. And, you know, frankly, I'm a victim of layoffs before the coronavirus. There are now beginning to be some media layoffs and furloughs, and we're going to lose some really talented people, which is incredibly unfortunate. Advertising dollars are down everywhere. Businesses are shutting. Businesses aren't open. They're not going to spend money on advertising to go forward. So you're going to see a lot of people get out of work. But one thing that's amazing to me is over the past couple of years, ESPN has gone from a company that we all used to get our sports from to a company that just can't hire the right people. They hire people because they used to be an athlete, they used to be a coach, and they bring them in. And how many of these guys turn out good? And one of the worst, in my opinion, he did something this week to make him the worst, is Rex Ryan, the former Bills and Jets coach, is a blowhard, and he always has been. But I want you to listen to what he said on the ESPN show Get Up about Amari Cooper, the Dallas Cowboys wide receiver. Well, I agree with Dan on the fact that I wouldn't have paid this guy. To me, this is the biggest disappearing act in the National Football League. He doesn't show up on the road. He doesn't show up against, when the competition's good, when he's against the top corners, that guy disappears. And to me, he reminds me, it's only one time that I can remember in, 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 uh, in recent memory on elite receivers and disappearing acts like Amari Cooper. That was the kid that the Raiders had uh, a few years ago. Oh, that's right. That was Amari Cooper. This is who he is. And, Dan, he doesn't love football. Hell with it. He stops his routes. He does all this. I wouldn't have paid this turd. No way in hell. All right. No way in hell would I have paid this guy. To me, you pay Dak Prescott. Forget all those numbers. That you know They're number one in the league because of Dak Prescott, not because of this guy. It's a deep draft at receiver. They made a huge mistake right here. A turd. He called him a turd. Amari Cooper, last year, 79 catches, 1,189 yards, eight touchdowns, 15 yards per catch. Is he perfect? No. Has he had some bad games where he's disappeared? Sure. You look back to his Oakland days, the first year, he had 72 catches. Next year, 83. Then he drops down to 48. Look, Amari Cooper's a young guy. He's getting better, in my opinion, at his craft. The Cowboys, I didn't think they should have given up a one to get him, but he changed their offense. Cowboys' problems aren't with their offense. The Cowboys' problems aren't Amari Cooper. Re-signing him to a five-year, $100 million deal keeps him there and allows this offense, assuming Dak Prescott gets re-signed, to stay on course. Now, Travis Frederick, their center, gets lost. But Amari Cooper, who by all accounts is a really good guy, by all accounts is a really hard worker and a really good teammate, is called a turd by Rex Ryan. ESPN not only hired Rex Ryan to be a football analyst to say great things like that, but they used that clip. They put it out on social media. Not only was it shown on Get Up, the Mike Greenberg show that spends a ton of money on salaries and hasn't produced ratings. They not only did that, though, they used that clip to promote their show. That's what they want people to tune in for. So that's how far over the top ESPN has gone to try to make up for its hiring mistakes. 
your talent that you're paying tens of millions of dollars a year for. And I, Mike Greenberg makes $10 million a year to do that show. It's If he's not good enough to carry it and produce ratings, why are you paying that guy? You need to bring in a coach who has a reputation of being a guy who can't coach anymore. You need to bring him in and say that guys are a turd. Rex Ryan is a turd. Rex Ryan, we, we here in Western New York bought in. Oh, man, Rex is going to come in. The Bills' defense at the time, the year before with Jim Schwartz, they had four guys get 10 sacks. Rex is going to take them, put them over the top. Rex took them, put them right over the top of a cliff. Brought in his brother, another blowhard who's on TV, who says whatever he thinks, and usually it's not based in fact. But these guys think they're unapproachable. They think they're above everyone. Their resumes speak for themselves. Well, just because you got hired often doesn't mean you were good at your job. Somebody believed in you, yeah. And if you speak well enough, you're going to sell yourself. And Rex Ryan and his brother Rob, they speak well, and they're going to be those guys that allow themselves to get hired again. But, man, I can't believe ESPN, the once great network, has missed so often. Think of their... Monday Night Football broadcast. They've struggled now for a couple of years with this broadcasting. Monday Night Football used to be the premier event, and I understand now that's Sunday Night Football. But if you're ESPN, there's no other games on. It's your show against zero competition. It should be your marquee show. Jason Witt was an unbelievably bad hire. It was a disaster. I love Jason Witt. One of my favorite football players of all time. Please don't ever announce again. Jason, just continue to do your great off-the-field work that you do. Be the great teammate you always were. And don't announce ever again. He just wasn't good at it. Just because Tony Romo's good doesn't mean every other member of that Cowboys team is going to be good. Witten's proof of that. Joe Tessitore acts like every two-yard gain just won the Super Bowl. I personally don't like his style. He's the least of the problems on Monday Night Football. Booger McFarlane, who thinks OJ was innocent, so right there, strike one in my book, because if you don't believe in facts, it's you know like the flat earth guys. I have a hard time taking anything you say seriously. But Booger is awful. If he was somebody who you developed as a studio guy, I think Booger would actually be good because he's got a lot of personality and could have a lot of fun. But as far as a game analyst, it's just not good. You're talking about Monday Night Football, a premier category. And the funny thing is, if you ever listen to Monday Night Football on the radio, Kevin Harlan's brilliant. He's as good as any announcer there is going right now. And Kurt Warner, the color analyst, fantastic. Simply hire them. I know they tried to hire Romo this offseason, but you got to figure it out. They've also got – they've had – Evan Smith, awful. Jerry Rice, Steve Young is terrible. The number of bad hires ESPN continues to make, and I'm not even getting into their shows that they've canceled because their shows are terrible. They just keep trying to shock the world and get back to everyone screaming at each other so we can all enjoy that because apparently the louder you speak, the more important you are. Here's an idea. You've got a guy like Louis Riddick. And even Ryan Clark, they're excellent. 
Use those guys more. Give them a bigger platform because they're not yelling to show how smart they are. No, they're delivering facts and opinions and entertaining and educating. Lewis Riddick is one of the people that when he speaks, I listen wholeheartedly because he's not an emotional guy. He's an intelligent guy. He's been there, done that. He's played, he's been in front offices, and he's not somebody who's trying to make everyone know how smart he is like Rex Ryan. No, he's somebody out there giving you his opinion in a calm, level manner that's based on film study and experience. And I think that's great. I really do. And I'd love to know how much film Rex Ryan watched of Amari Cooper before he called him a turd. Yet, somehow, Rex is still going to get employed. I don't know about you, but ESPN's morning show on Sunday football, I haven't watched it in years. The Fox show is far superior. The ESPN show, it's just a waste of time. Talk a little college basketball to finish things up. Today, April 7th, is the 17th anniversary of Syracuse University basketball winning the national championship down in New Orleans. I happened to be there that night. Went to that Final Four, watched Syracuse and Jim Beheim get that ring. Personally, one of the experiences of my life. Loved every minute of it. It was fantastic. New Orleans is one of those cities that if you don't have a good time in New Orleans, you might want to check for a pulse because it is a lot of fun. Is it disgusting? Yeah, it's Bourbon Street. Give it a try, though. The three for ones in the afternoon, highly advisable. But, yeah, Syracuse wins that game. And on Saturday night, there was a replay of that game on CBS Sports Network. I had never seen the game before. I was at the game, but I never watched the telecast. I did so. And Saturday night, Syracuse put together a watch party where members of that team, guys like Jerry McNamara and Hakeem Warwick, Queft Waney, were on Facebook, on Zoom, so that they could speak to each other. Jim Beheim was there, Matt Park, Voice of the Order. It was a cool, cool event. And there was a lot of trash talk and jokes among the teammates. They talked about plays, talked about the different things that went on in that game. Jerry McNamara having six threes in the first half. A lot of the current players tweeting out about their coach. Man, coach could shoot. Coach could shoot. Now, we all knew that because we watched Jerry McNamara play for 17 years or four. Seemed like 17. But, yeah, we all knew that. But the younger players, you think about this, players that are at SU now, like Buddy Beheim, was two years old when that happened. Joe Girard was one. So these guys, they didn't see that game. They didn't know that. They didn't watch it. They knew about it. They knew about Mello. But they get a chance to see it. It was a real cool event. And as we go through this time with the coronavirus, I'd love to see more of that where players and members of teams do a Facebook live broadcast and talk amongst each other. Cause some of the stories that come out are pretty good. One of the stories that came out with Bayheim made a comment about Troy Weaver leaving SU. So Troy Weaver was an assistant coach at Syracuse from 2002 to 2005. He's now the vice president of basketball operations for the Oklahoma City Thunder of the NBA. 
Troy Weaver's job at Syracuse was not only as an assistant coach, but to recruit. And he had a strong recruiting base from the Baltimore area. That's why Carmelo Anthony was able to come from Baltimore to Syracuse and ended up being the most outstanding player of the Final Four and led Syracuse to its only championship. During the telecast, Bayheim dropped something that I had never heard before, and I don't think many people had or even known, but he said that if Troy Weaver hadn't left, SU would have had Kevin Durant. Wait, what? Kevin Durant only played one year at Texas. But to say Kevin Durant was a good college player might be an understatement. Kevin Durant, who's probably the best player in the league, not named LeBron James, when healthy, is a great, long, athletic, shooting shooting small forward. It's seven foot. He's a small forward. Think about the length of Kevin Durant in the 2-3 zone. The ability to shoot at the other end, what that would have done. Possibly Syracuse has another one-and-done kid who leads them back to the Final Four. It was such a big moment to hear Beheim say that. It was downright shocking for me. So pretty cool stuff that they did that. And 17 years ago today, the Orange get there. And the other thing, watching that team, the depth of that team. The starting five, Carmelo Anthony, Jerry McNamara, Craig Forth, Quef Duaney, and Akeem Warwick. Josh Pace, Billy Edlin, and Jeremy McNeil coming off the bench. This team was very deep. They got great contributions in the championship game from Josh Pace and Billy Edlin. They probably wouldn't have won the championship without those two guys. It was a great team. And I guess looking back, the depth of it shows again that Syracuse recruiting over the last couple of years has certainly slipped and they don't have the depth. They don't have the numbers. Now next year's team did get a little bit better on Saturday night. Saturday night was an interesting night for the orange. Everyone was watching the 2003 game when Illinois guard Alan Griffin announced he was transferring from the Illini to the orange Griffin, who is not, Orange assistant coach Alan Griffin's son. His father, Adrian Griffin, is an assistant coach with the Toronto Raptors. But Alan Griffin is 6'5", guard, can shoot it almost 42% from three in the Big Ten last year. Defensively, he's going to be long at the top of the zone. And now if you look at the way the Orange set up for next year, you've got Alan Griffin, who's hoping to be eligible to play right away. Buddy Bayham, Joe Girard will be the guards. I think that you're going to see Buddy Beheim play a little bit more of the three. But circling the perimeter with those three guys who are all knockdown shooters, you got two 40% guys and a 35% guy from three, you can't leave them alone, which stretches the inside. So now all of a sudden a guy like Quincy Garriott, who I expect to be much improved, is going to have tons of room to operate. The Orange aren't going to be great next year. But I think they're going to be better, and I think they're going to be more interesting. I don't think they're done recruiting yet either. But Alan Griffin, I think he's somebody who really fits what Beheim's trying to do and has always tried to do with big guards at the top of the zone. And I think he's somebody that is a big ad. So while recruiting has taken a step back, I think it's important to look and give credit where credit is due. And the orange landing 
Big Ten transfer, Alan Griffin, certainly deserves some credit. So going to be an interesting season, and frankly, I can't wait. That means normalcy's here. We're talking real basketball. Bring it on. So that's it. Episode five in the books. Hope you enjoyed it. The week that never was. Well, that's this week. And hopefully soon we're talking about real sports that are happening on the field. Until then, we'll be talking about theories and people not going to things. I'll be here talking to you. Hit me up on Twitter, Carl Falk 2. Talk about whatever you want to as we get towards the draft. We'll certainly have some people come in and talk about the draft. But thanks for listening. Spread the word. We'll be back next week. Have a good one.